Hello, everyone. Good morning. My name uh, is Rich. Um, if you don't know me, uh, if you've been around for the last kind of few weeks that we've been gathering together, um, you'll know that we've been in a little series uh, entitled Encounters with Jesus. Um, first of all, we looked at an encounter kind of up and down a mountain, uh, and then in a crowd. Uh, and this morning, we're going to carry that on uh, with part three. Uh, of what I confidently declared at the start of my last talk uh, was a two-part miniseries. Um, it's actually going to end up as six parts. Um, I was only four out, so that's not, not too bad. Um, just as we reflected as a team, we felt like there was real value at this moment um, in exploring some of these different interactions that Jesus has with different individuals. Um, individuals in very different situations, very different scenarios. Um, in order that, we might do what we've been talking about already, that we might see him afresh, that we might see him more clearly in how he encounters individuals in these places, and that we might see how he comes to encounter us in our own places and situations. Um, this year is a year of adventure for us as a church. Um, it's certainly been an adventure so far, the ups and the downs, but at the heart of that, is the invitation to an adventure of knowing Jesus, of exploring the depths of his love and grace and justice and mercy. And so having looked at mountain and crowd, uh, over the next few weeks we're also going to look at party, um, boat, road, and this morning at tree. Um, all different kind of locations that Jesus encounters people. And so uh, if you want to turn to Luke um, chapter 19, um, if not, don't worry, it's going to come up on the screen behind me. Uh, and this is what Luke writes. Um, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short... He could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And this story is one that I'm sure will be uh, familiar to many of you. Um, it was a favourite uh, of mine in Sunday school when I was growing up, and possibly because of the ease with which it led to all sorts of fun, tree-related craft options. Um, possibly also as well. Um, yeah, there, there are some fun tree craft options, I know, I know. Um, but possibly as well also because then, as a child, and as well now, I was quite vertically challenged. Um, and so it's easy to identify with someone being stuck at the back of the crowd, uh, not being able to quite see everything that's going on. Even now, it's, it's easy for us to look to Zacchaeus and see in ourselves that longing 
to get close to Jesus, and yet that fear of what it might mean if we really did, what it would cost to really do so. You see, Zacchaeus was not a popular man in Jericho. And so first of all, he was a tax collector, um, and so he was about as popular then as HMRC are now. Um, But even more than that, to be a tax collector uh, in first century Palestine meant that you were working uh, for the occupying Roman armies. By doing what he was doing, he was ensuring that Rome had the money to continue oppressing the Jewish people. He was, in essence, a traitor to his own people, a puppet of those who had marched in and seized control. And not only that, but because his job provided ample opportunities for him to rip off the people, to exploit them for personal gain, he was very wealthy. Unlike the vast majority of the population at the time, he was able to live a life of luxury, separated from everyone else by his wealth. And so one who was already ostracized from society by choosing to serve Rome got further cut off as he got richer and richer, got further and further away from everyone else. And finally, even more than all of that, Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. It tells us he was a chief tax collector. He was actively employed in employing others to do the same work, encouraging them to rip the people off more and more so there'd be more money left for him as as it made its way up the chain. He was the kingpin in a cartel committed to causing suffering for the sake of self-interest. And in Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus' disciples are asked by the Pharisees why he hangs around with tax collectors and sinners. Um, The implication being that uh, sinners, anyone who didn't keep the law, all of the Pharisees' extra rules as well, according to them, are one thing. But tax collectors, they're on another level entirely. In society at that time, they were the peak, the pinnacle of what it was to be a flawed, messed up sinner. And talking about sin and sinners is something that can feel a little bit uncomfortable in our 21st century context. It feels a little bit old-fashioned at times, a little bit outdated. It's something that's kind of should be hidden away, mentioned only in kind of small groups, the dark corners of coffee shops. And yet... That's where people call me out on my sin. <laughs> so stay away from coffee shops if you want to stay away from sin. It's clearly the moral of this story. Um, and yet it's something that's fundamental for us to understand. Um, because the more we get to grips with the darkness of sin, the more brightly shines the light of the gospel in contrast. And the reality of sin for Zacchaeus was that it was something that isolated him. It isolated him to the extent that rather than risk facing the crowd, he hid up a tree. It bred in him an individualistic lifestyle of greed and betrayal. Sin is anything that separates us from God. It's not just a list of all of the wrong things we've ever said, thought, and done. It's not a mathematical formula of our errors that kind of counts up and up and up with no end in sight. It's more than that. It's a power that moves in the world and grips our hearts and binds our will and brings suffering and destruction and misery. It's something that's broken the world. And in that brokenness and in our brokenness, 
each and every one of us choose it for ourselves. It's everything that's opposed to the goodness of God, that goodness we've been singing about this morning. It is everything that's opposed to God. And for God to be good, to be love, he must call people out of that and he must call them into something better. The message that comes through the Bible time and time again is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He's the only one in all of creation big enough that everything else is defined by its relation to him. And when we compare ourselves, we all fall short. Jew and Gentile, old and young, man and woman, rich and poor, nobody can match up. And that's the reality that Zacchaeus was living with that day. That's what drove him to seek an encounter with Jesus, to try and catch just a glimpse. He was someone who knew the depths of his own problems, who'd heard about this one called Jesus, who maybe, just maybe, offered a different way. Verse 3 says, he wanted to see who Jesus was. He wanted to see who Jesus was. That's the desire that's at the beginning of all transformation. Are you here this morning? Do you want to see who Jesus is again? So what happens is Zacchaeus, he hides up this tree. He hopes to catch just a glimpse, but uh, in the end, he ends up getting much more than he bargained for. And Jesus spots him. He calls him down. He invites himself over for dinner. Um, and the one who is seeking becomes the one who is sought. And it changes everything for him. And Luke, writing uh, the story, draws a sharp contrast in what happens next um, with another encounter that takes place just the chapter before um, in Luke chapter 18. And so in that story, this is what happens. It's another familiar one for many of us. It says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your mother and father. All of these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And by putting the two stories so close together, Luke is making the point for us crystal clear. Here we have two men who are in many ways alike. Two men who begin the story loving money. Two men who seek an encounter with Jesus. Two men who are left changed by that encounter. And yet one man was unwilling to lose his possessions. And the other, having seen Jesus was unwilling to keep them. One man went away sad. The other left filled with joy. They each counted the cost and made their choice. Jesus tells us to count the cost of following him. He promises there are going to be times when it's hard. Times we have to carry our cross. Times we have to endure sorrow 
and hardship for the sake of the gospel. He wants us to weigh up whether or not we're really all in. He doesn't want half-hearted followers. He wants all of our lives. We're to count the cost of following him. But if we count that cost primarily in terms of what we'll lose on earth, we're focusing on the wrong thing. Yes, it's going to be hard, but it's also going to be wonderful. And in choosing to keep his possessions, the rich young man lost far more. He lost the beautiful joy of being united to the son and through him having fellowship with the father. He lost the identity-shaping joy of being welcomed before the throne of grace as a dearly loved child of God. He lost the profound joy and strength and comfort of being part of Christ's body, the church. He lost the freeing joy of the forgiveness of all of his sins. He lost the transformative joy of the promise of the Spirit working in him to help him bear the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. He lost the sustaining joy of knowing the provision of God's sufficient grace for every need. He lost the unspeakable joy of knowing that every great and precious promise of God found their yes for him in Jesus. He lost the triumphant joy of seeing others come and join him in the kingdom of light. He lost the abundant joy of the life that Jesus was offering him, a life to the full. And he lost eternal joy. He walked away from the heavenly treasure of eternal life with God, the opportunity to enjoy with him a renewed, restored, redeemed heaven and earth. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? How small the whole world seems in comparison to the riches of what it is to follow Christ. To know Jesus, to enjoy the fullness of what it means, that all that is yours is his and all that he is and has is yours. All those things that the rich young ruler lost, they're freely offered to you this morning in Christ. We count the cost of following Jesus based on what we treasure the most. Zacchaeus, a man used to counting up costs, looked on all he had. He counted the cost of every penny and he decided it came to far less than he thought. He decided it came to far less than what was on offer in the one standing before him. Right at the very beginning, Adam and Eve sought knowledge from a tree in place of an encounter with God, and they died. Zacchaeus sought an encounter with Jesus from a tree and received a knowledge that brought life. And ultimately, both of these encounters are pointing forward to another. Jesus dying on a tree in order to win for us the most precious of knowledge, the joy of knowing God, the invitation 
that all who seek are welcome to come and encounter him and find in him life. Zacchaeus saw Jesus and was changed. That little seed of desire, that spot of light in the darkness. He wanted to see who Jesus was. And it bursts out at the end of the story into bloom with the fruit of repentance. And there are two main problems um, with what we can often perceive as repentance. Uh, Either we can be too quick um, or too slow. Uh, I play uh, in a cricket team uh, on Saturdays, uh, and there's a guy on my team who, uh, whenever he makes a mistake, whenever he drops a catch um, or lets the ball go through his legs or throws it off wildly um, in the wrong direction, um, this guy's not me, (laughs) just make that clear. Um, Yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'm much worse than that. Um, But what he does um, is he just sticks his hand up and shouts, my bad, and then like carries on as if nothing had happened. He forgets even that the ball has run through his legs and is going away behind him. He just shouts, my bad, and gets on with it. And we can have a tendency to think of repentance in a similar kind of way, that it's just about admitting a fault. That even if we do that in kind of the briefest and shortest way possible, that's all it takes. Um, once we've done that, we just need to get on with it, forget about it. And equally, the opposite can be true, that we get so wrapped up in our pride um, that it can be impossible to admit fault at all. And you see it all the time on uh, Facebook or Twitter, people getting into arguments where halfway through they've realized they're on the wrong side, but by then it's too late. They're stuck with no way out, uh, except to um, keep on arguing in increasingly ridiculous ways um, or kind of electronically storm off. When the Bible talks about repentance, it's talking about something very different to both of those things. Jesus began his ministry with a call to anyone and everyone who would listen to repent and believe because the kingdom of God was at hand. The new creation inaugurated in the midst of the old was within touching distance for all those who would just reach out their hands and grasp it. And the Greek word for repentance in the New Testament means literally to think differently to reconsider it's about doing what paul writes about in romans 12 verse 2 about being transformed by the renewing of our minds about shifting our thinking 180 degrees it doesn't refer to a single moment but an ongoing process that as we increasingly center our lives on jesus we have to reorient our minds in order to understand this new reality of who God is, of what he's done, and then allow ourselves to be changed by it. John the Baptist had come with a similar message a little bit earlier on uh, in Luke 3 verse 8, when he describes the relationship between repentance and new behavior. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he gives examples of the fruits. He says, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Those are provoking verses for us in an affluent and yet poverty-stricken society. But what John is making clear here is that 
the repenting is what happens inside of us that leads to the fruit of new behavior. Repentance isn't necessarily the deeds themselves, but it's the inward change that bears the fruit of new deeds. That's what Jesus was calling people to when he stood and declared that the kingdom of God was at hand, that the time had come to repent and believe. It was an an invitation to a life of adventure that would change everything. D.L. Moody wrote about how um, before we can pray to God to come and fill us, we need to pray that he would come and empty us of all of the things that we're currently full of, all the distractions we've filled our lives with, busyness and pleasure and comfort. That sin that had so gripped Zacchaeus that he was so aware of on that day, he went to encounter Jesus. And we need to allow all of them to drain away. We need to allow God to come and empty us of everything that might stand between us and Jesus. Because until we do, it's no good praying to be filled. We're already full of something else. And that's what repentance is. It's seeing God again. It's seeing ourselves in the light of who he is. It's emptying ourselves of everything that's stopping us from embracing him wholeheartedly. It's receiving from him again that encounter that drives out darkness and fear and shame. And it's turning to live in the goodness of a renewed identity. That's the gospel on full display. Light shining forth as we see again our need for a gracious saviour. Like Jesus, we have to ask ourselves the question, is there anything in my life I wouldn't give up for Jesus? Anything even I wouldn't halve if looking to him I was suddenly convicted to give it all away? Is there any part of my life where a fuller and deeper and richer understanding of who God is wouldn't prompt a change? And this is where the sharp edge of the story starts to get a little bit uncomfortable for us today. Where the feel-good Sunday school story um, of a vertically challenged, happy-go-lucky tax collector starts to be replaced with the reality of some of the things going on in our own lives. Repentance never feels good initially. Um, If it does, you're doing it wrong. As I've been preparing for this talk this week, again and again, I've had to examine myself, see how far short I fall, and then turn back to the Father, the one Spurgeon calls the blessed face who beams with grace and truth as the sun beams with warmth and light, the one who melts the cold frost settled on my heart in pride and selfishness and frustration. I have to come again to the Father on my knees and see again the beautiful truth that there is more righteousness in Christ than there is sin in me. And he has given himself for me entirely. Repentance begins with pain. 
but it ends in joy. It ends with a shout of joy. Imagine the scenes as Zacchaeus begins to give back the money that he's wrongly taken. Crowds forming, queues lengthening, where before they'd begrudgingly trudged to the tax office. Hatred and despair filling them, knowing that this guy was ripping them off, barely able to pay, but imprisoned by the fear of what the Roman soldiers would do if they didn't. Now they're standing in awe and wonder. They're filled with joy at this most unexpected gift. A curiosity rising as the whispers spread of what happened at the tree as the most hated man in town had an encounter with Jesus. Heartfelt repentance leads to joy. And that's what we're invited to this morning. And so to respond, we're going to take up the same invitation that was offered to Zacchaeus. The invitation that was offered then to crooked Roman uh, tax collectors is offered to us today, broken Western cinema gatherers. The invitation to share Jesus' table. And we're going to do that together in communion. And so if the band um, would like to come back up and join me, um, we're going to do it uh, in a slightly different way uh, this morning, Um, although it seems like there's almost never a a set way that we do communion at Oasis, which I think is probably the way it should be. Um, uh, And so what we're going to do is the guys are going to come forward, the welcome team who are going to service um, and have been serving us so well all morning. As well, and so as they pass around kind of the trays, um, please do take a little bit of bread, um, take a little cup of juice, and hold on to both of them for now. Um, And I'll lead us through a little bit later on um, how we're going to take them. Um, When Jesus wanted to give his followers then and now an understanding, um, a way of understanding and applying um, the cross, applying what it meant. For their lives. He didn't give us a theory. He didn't give us a program. He didn't give us a list of questions to answer. He gave us an act to perform. He gave us a meal to share. It's a meal that speaks of the magnitude of what it cost him on the cross. It's a meal that speaks of our glorious union with him. It's a meal that speaks of embracing him entirely and wholeheartedly. It's a meal that speaks of his provision of grace to us each and every day. It's a meal that speaks of repentance, turning to him again, no matter where we are or what we've done. And if you're here this morning and you wouldn't say that you've centered your life on Jesus, this is an invitation. It's an opportunity to do that for the first time but it's not an obligation you're equally welcome to just let the trays pass you by to share Jesus' table is no small thing it's an invitation to a whole new life a whole new way of thinking a whole new way of living and being it's a way of saying I'm in I'm all in if you're choosing that for the first time this morning I'd love to chat to you afterwards
Why don't we stand together? Um, the trays will kind of keep going around. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing um, a chorus from a song together. Uh, and then after that, we'll come back once everyone's been served and share communion together. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence here with us. We thank you for those beautiful truths of who you are, the joy we have, joy unspeakable on offer in you. We take hold of those promises of God, which in Christ are for us this morning. We say, Lord, we're desperate like Zacchaeus for that encounter. We know that even a glimpse would be enough, and yet you invite us to so much more. You invite us to your table. And so we say, Lord, we come and we give ourselves to you again. We allow you to come and fill our gaze again, to renew our minds and draw our attention to anything in our lives where we're not following you need to make a change, any relationships we have that we need to restore with grace and truth and humility. We say, Lord, here is my heart and it's all yours. Come and move. in 1 Corinthians 11 for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me so we take the bread together welcome Jesus again and we say we thank you for what you have done and for what it costs.
So Jesus, we come with joy in our hearts, thanksgiving overflowing in who you are and what you've done. And we say again together, here is my life, Lord. Here's my life. God, I lay it before you. Come and live and move and work in me in order that I might know more and more the riches of the joy, of the love, the peace, the hope, the grace, the goodness that is found in you, our blessed Saviour. We stand and praise you together, Lord.